Hello and welcome to Chatty AF, the anime feminist podcast and part two of our Pelamaji Madoka Magica rewatch along. My name is Vrai, I'm a content editor at Anime Feminist and you can find me where I freelance on Twitter at Writer Vry, or you can find the other podcast I co-host about weird, uh, obscure, and forgotten media at TrashPod. And with me again today are Mercedes and Alex. Hey, I am Alex. I'm a contributions editor here at Anifem. In my daytime life, I am a exhausted academic. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at the aficionado, like aficionado, but with a T in it because I talk about fiction. It's still the best pun I've ever come up with, and I will hang on to it till my final days upon this planet. <laughs> I love that. Um, my name is Mercedes, and I am anime feminist resident idol lover, a title which I am going to use every single time I'm on a podcast. Um, <laughs> thank you. I am an editor at Anime Feminist, as well as a writer for a lot of different sites, including most recently, the Anime News Network. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I'm your all-around cool person who does localization and a lot of stuff. You're so busy all the time. I am so busy. So- I, I, much like the magical girls in this show, would just like to have someone like take my soul away <laughs> <laughs> for a moment. Is that what you really want? Oh, I guess we can no, get into that. I, I love the work I do, <laughs> and unlike poor Sayaka, I like existing. <sighs> yeah. So I'm poor gonna try. Out. Really hard to like keep some semblance of form on this podcast, but I make no guarantees that this won't just dissolve into shouting and feelings because that's the Madoka experience. I mean, I said in our Google Doc that this podcast is officially in defense of Sayaka Miki, Puella Magai Madoka Magica's most tragic character. I said Mm -hmm. that for a reason because it's Mm -hmm. true. This is just Sayaka cast. We, we can just dive in with Sayaka. Uh, I, I feel both of you feel free to go ahead because this arc makes me cranky. So I want I want both of you to have the, ch- the floor ahead of For, me. First of all, Sayaka, chaotic by energy. Very much. <laughs> it's very good. It's the That's sword. Cool. It's the jewel wielding. I mean, like, <laughs> so, I mean, I don't know how anyone's going to transcribe the sound I just made, but CJ will manage. Sayaka and Kyoko have such sapphic energy that I began <gasps> to compose poetry in the vein of Sappho. I was like, <laughs> "Wow, this show really, this show really has." And I mean, I mean, I know we can talk about this. The show really has like these girls die, and it's essentially because of each other, <laughs> like. It is. That scene. Oh, God. when Kyoko's like, "Oh man, I guess this is it for me. Time to go rescue my girlfriend in, in the ending song." Oh God! Yeah, I totally forgot there was like uh, a special ending song over that art of them falling down into the water together. I was like, "Oh no! Oh my goodness!" And like Kyoko looks so at peace, and like Sayaka's crying because you know i mean sayaka's whole arc through like episode seven and eight and into episode nine like is basically her realizing that she sacrificed herself for 
as many of us who suffer under heterosexuality at some point do for a man in this case a boy who is never going to like her nevertheless love her in the way that she feels towards him and it's this really it's really tragic and honestly as a queer adult hit very differently seeing her like come to this realization that like there's no point in me existing there's no point because i'm never going to get this love and so she just like ends it the way that she wants just like lets the world burn and y'all i cry i cry bad <laughs> i cry we kind of didn't we didn't get to talk much about kyoko last time so do you want to do a quick because like their arcs are kind of intertwined especially at this ending yeah. point so yeah let's, let's do a little kyoko appreciation station um i find her a super interesting character um in a way that i don't think i really appreciated when i watched it when i was younger um I think a lot of the nuances of her art kind of went over my head. Like, for example, that quirk where she's eating all the time. I was like, that's kind of odd. But, of course, you put that backstory together and it's because it's like a, it's a it's a survival instinct that she was starving at one point. There was food scarcity. And so now she feels like she has to eat all the time as almost like a almost like an angry thing, like a defense yeah. mechanism. Yeah, because she gets super angry at Sayako when Sayaka throws the apple on the ground and yeah. she's like, don't you ever do that in front of me. And the upon your first watch, you're like, whoa, Kyoko, it's like a golden, it's not even a golden delicious, not even a good apple. <laughs> you're like, mm, it's maybe a red Macintosh at best. And this watch, you're like, oh, oh God. It's because... Kyoka was starving because her father's church wasn't doing well. And I assume like her father's Christian church because he looks like a priest. It has like the cross imagery. So I'm going to presume, yeah, some sort of yeah. denomination. Which, it's kind yeah. of not important, which because the kind of thing right. is that, like it went off the rails. and Yeah, the specificity yeah. of excommunication. I mean, I don't know, oh, right, but yes. that feels to me like a very Christian. Yeah, yeah. And I mean... Like, there is there is a lot of nuance. There is also the fact that, uh, y'all, I forgot Kyoko's family was ended in a murder-suicide? Yeah, uh -huh. it's grim. It's grim. Like, that happened, and I was like, oh, Christ, is there, like, magical girl therapy? Kyubei ain't offering that. <laughs> I no. think that's kind of the, the end point, the end question of the whole show is, is there magical girl therapy, and can we get every single character into it? That's kind of what Cosmic Madoka's trying to do, maybe. Offer them all cosmic therapy. This would be so different if Madoka's wish was, like, I wish to get my license in psychotherapy. <laughs> the show would be so different if, like, Madoka got certified and was like, maybe we all just need to have a talk. <laughs> oh. See, the... To loop back, the thing that I also didn't realize on first watch is that, like, because this is this follows straight on from the reveal about the soul gems, about the kind of empty bodies, and about how they kind of can't die so long as their soul gems are intact. So the implication there, I believe, is that Kyoko was effectively murdered by her father, but because of the magic, she managed to kind of come back. So yeah. that's just something she has to live with now, that she, you know, was killed by someone who is meant to be her caretaker which that's you know that's something that you will carry with you and it's like yeah no wonder she's so standoffish and so brash and so reluctant about everything like 
you would be. That fundamentally changes you as a person. It's kind of not gotten, gone into as much right. as it could be, but it's just an extra thing hanging there being like, yeah, you know, you sacrificed your soul for this person who you loved and he literally killed you. Right. Well, and I think it's interesting because Kyoko's often like seen, and I think maybe I'm going to just say also by the fandom, I think was initially kind of perceived as like maybe a very brash kind of rude character when like she absolutely is doing for herself because the time where she trusted the adults in her life to help her and do things to help her. Yeah. Like the Mm -hmm. adult she trusted and loved the most when he finds out that she helped her is not grateful. In fact, basically rages against her and pretty much is like, you're not my child. I don't want you kills her family. And then I think, I think that interpretation is interesting, basically like kills his daughter. And it's only the fact that he doesn't hit her soul gem that saves her. It's only Mm -hmm. the fact that her body, her soul is literally this crystallized physical form that she can kind of, you know, keep away that saves her. And it's horrific. It is. And so again, it's no wonder she gets so tetchy with Sayaka because she sees her younger self in her. um, And is like, Hey, don't um which honestly is perfectly reasonable advice if you once you know the context especially that bit because yeah i think it's in episode six it sounds very mean at the time but she's like hey you know why didn't you wish that he would just fall in love with you why didn't you want you know say what you actually wanted instead of having to be like a martyr and a hero and sark is like no shut up i'd be a good person so like you're you're kind of the audience is kind of on sark's side at that point and so Mm -hmm. it sounds really mean but she making a really good point and it's drawing from this experience. Um, and I feel like we'll get more into that question the further we go into Sayaka Town. I really love that's Kyoko's flashback sequence is maybe one of my favorite scenes mm-hmm. in the whole show because it's, a, there are a lot of scenes during these couple episodes that are just absolutely breathtaking. Maybe some of the best in the show, but mm-hmm. I, it, uh, I think that this scene I really like because of how restrained it is. Like, it implies a lot of dark shit, but you have to kind of unpack it, like mm-hmm. you were talking about. And I think that stands, it's both to the show's credit because I think it really gets at how magical girl shows at large tend to portray very dark content with that kind of abstracted imagery and suggestion. I love the paper dolls so much. And then it's also kind of to the show's detriment because then you set it up against Sayaka's horrible, uh, terrible, no good, very bad day, which is (laughs) just the least subtle thing on earth. I think this section loses a lot of people Mm -hmm. and I do not blame them because it makes me kind of annoyed every time because I Kyosuke and Hitomi are not bad people and they don't know what's going on. And, and Sayaka's not a bad person either. It's just like a, it's just a tragedy of misfortune, but it's yeah. also so contrived to me because, oh gosh, Sayaka learned that she, you know, she's struggling with this existential crisis. And then what's the worst th- and saddest thing that could happen to her immediately after that? Somebody else is going to confess to her crush. And what if would be even sadder as if it was her best friend? But see, I actually like that. I actually like that because I think, and I think I said this last episode, I think the feelings, especially, and I'm going to use, I'm going to say AFAB T 
teenagers, mm-hmm. because I think this is something very specific that society structures for teenagers that we perceive as being female in a binary mm-hmm. experience. I think the emotionality of like how you're supposed to feel when your friend likes the boy that you like is a very cultural thing. And I, I think it's cultural in a global sense. And I think, I think, whereas it is kind of like, it is not subtle <laughs> at all. Like they just, I mean, Sayaka is just having anvil after anvil dropped on her. But <laughs> yeah. I did kind of, I did kind of like that. Like, yeah. What's the worst thing that can happen? Her best friend who doesn't know any of this stuff is happening in her life likes the same guy and what is the absolute worst thing she confesses and Sayaka who gave up and did so much for him gets nothing and I think I think it's actually in a weird way it's kind of true to like how society kind of expects you to feel if you are a teenage girl who likes a guy and I actually kind of I kind of appreciated that like they captured like how it feels when you're in that position, even if that's not necessarily the reality, because you're right, like Kyosuke and Hitomi are not bad people. They have no clue that Sayaka's fighting witches after school. They have no clue. But the way it feels is like, oh man, they went behind my back and like, well, I have to give it up to Hitomi, but maybe Kyosuke really likes me. Maybe he'll see the sacrifice I did. And of course, because he doesn't have that information, well, yeah, like, they're gonna say, oh, I like, yeah, let's try it. Let's teenage date. And I kind of like that almost dramatic, heavy-handed emotionality, because it feels like how it feels when you're a teenager. Yeah, you, you captures that big feeling, like that kind of, that transition shot where she's watching them chat on the bench, and then it goes into, like, she's kind of falling into the bubbly water, and then it, it switches into her fighting a witch and just, like, screaming. I'm like, yeah, that's sometimes what it feels like to be 14. And so yeah. both the magic setup and the visual imagery, I think, you know, yeah, captures that emotionality, captures mm. how it feels in a kind of weirdly authentic way. Um, yeah. But it is, it, is, it is not subtle. It is not subtle at all. It's and Fry is absolutely right. It's not <laughs> yeah, subtle. And, and to, be, like, to be fair, I think you're right that that individual story beat has a lot of truth behind it. I think maybe where it loses me is that it's all strung together with, on the one hand, you have the soul gem on the other side. And then it makes this, this arc requires you to make so many big emotional leaps from like, mm-hmm. she's crushed by that. And then we have to jump immediately to... Not only will I fight all the familiars and protect everyone, I also won't use any grief seeds or use any magic to even keep myself alive because we need her to be as sad as possible, as fast as possible. I I think if there had been an episode between that to show that actual, like, what what is the word? Degradation? Is that a word? Did I make that up? Degradation? There we go degradation if if we had seen that decay of sayaka like going Mm -hmm. from a girl who's like you know what maybe maybe i can okay i'm still gonna do the right thing to like i don't care about anyone i don't care about myself i'm gonna try and do the best i can and if i sacrifice enough maybe i'll get something in the end maybe kyosuke will like recognize me or maybe someone who i care about will recognize me if we had seen that decay and had Monica been like 13 episodes, that would have been chef's kiss. But what we get is 12 episodes in a very crunch sequence where, yeah, like Sayaka goes from like incredibly optimistic to incredibly, what is it? Misanthropic. 
Mm-hmm. Downright like, suicidal, honestly. Five. Well, and I mean, but like she is, she is suicidal, and I think that's also something you see as an adult. Mm-hmm. It's like Sayaka is incredibly self-destructive, and basically all but looks at the camera and says, "I'm going to die by suicide." And I think like that is definitely something I did not get on my first watch, but on this watch, I was like, kind of stuck in my seat, just like, "Wow!" Like Sayaka is a deeply suicidal girl. And like, that's also very true to teenage girls worldwide. Um, Unfortunately, it's a very true thing. The fact that she's a a very brittle sort of character is, is kind of an interesting thing about her. Mm -hmm. Like Madoka is very flexible and Homura is kind of made to be that way. But Sayaka is such an optimist that like, you know, she has these very high ideals, but they can't take being challenged, which is true to being that age. And so yeah. she falls all the way to the other end of it. She's a very stubborn character, and that is set up at the start. And yeah, it just like, it goes to the absolute extreme because, yeah, like we were, like we were kind of talking about, it can feel a bit, a teensy tiny bit ham-fisted, but also, I don't know, to me it makes sense that she would be like, no, I'm going to be the best person alive and no one help me. No one give me any assistance. No one give me any advice. No one touch me. Even if this destroys me, I'm going to, you know, it, that'll be making a point. Um, she really, she's kind of puts her her own sense of self aside for these very black and white ideals. She's internalized about how to be a hero, how to be a good magical girl, um, you know, and the, again, the very Urobochi-esque question here is like, can you truly be a hero in this very cynical world? Which, again, this is the last time I'll bring up Fate, but knowing that he had also written Fate Zero and knowing that things like Psychopaths were in the works for the next few years, seeing this in conversation with those is quite interesting because it's like, yeah, you really hadn't gotten this out of your system, had you, man? Because, like, that question of, like, can you do good in an awful world is really kind of at the crux of, well, it's at the crux of the show, as we'll get to as we talk about the right. conclusion, but it's really like it goes wrong. The answer in Sayaka's arc it, to that question is no, at least right. not in the very rigid view of heroism and chivalry and goodness that she has. And I think, yeah, because she is so ideologically inflexible on it and stubborn again as a 14 year old feeling these big feelings and thrust into this adventure would be it goes belly up for her and that's ultimately her tragedy is that she's a kid who is sucked into this system that exploits these ideas that she has and just like runs her into the ground and doesn't contradict her when she's like i'm a monster and i must do you know sacrifice myself um Kubei's like yeah sure go ahead I'm not going to tell you no. <laughs> well, and, and it's interesting because I, w- one thing I really realized about Sayaka on this watch is like, I think, and maybe we won't all agree, but I'm going to speak for all of us. I think all of us can agree. Like Madoka is not the protagonist of this show at all. Like, uh, I, oh, may, okay. Maybe Mercedes feels that way. I don't no, no, think. No, no, go on, go on. I don't think Madoka's the protagonist instead. Oh, okay. Someone help me. The word that means like two protagonists. Deuteragonist, I I actually want to pitch that the actual leads of this show, the actual Deuteragonist, are Homura and Sayaka. 
and that Monica is actually just this girl who has a lot of consequence around her and a lot of connection and that Monica is important but like actually the show is really about Homer and Sayaka two characters who are quite the same but split in very different directions one thing I really when I had that thought in in episode seven and even more in episode eight especially because like just Say- I mean, Sayaka's whole story just crushed me um, from the moment where she says like she's a zombie because I'm mind you I'm watching the English dub and the voice acting actually was really good because we're going to get into some bad voice acting um, but the voice acting for this was really good because she sounds so shattered and and I really had this thought that I was like you know what and and especially what you just said Alex like this show really could be like magical girl sayaka magica because like she kind of is this leading character until she isn't she maybe she reads herself as the main character of her own adventure and that's kind of her downfall in the end but she she does right because like her uniform her outfit has a cape Mm -hmm. she has a sword she's kind of channeling like these um tezuka princess knight vibes where like yeah true she's and, and like, mind you, I've never seen Utena, but from what I understand from the energy, that's kind of at play here, it feels like, because There's she's- definitely at least one overt um, Utena reference during okay. um, during the red and blue uh, image during the, uh, during the fight with uh, Witch Sayaka. Yeah, because like, she, I mean, but Sayaka clearly sees herself as the literal protagonist of her story. She's got a cape and this really stylish outfit and her music is always like very you know mommy's is very victorious mommy's uh what is it a leitmotif mommy's leitmotif mm-hmm. believe in justice is always like very it's justice sounding it sounds like a bunch of horns and like golden and brassy mm-hmm. and sayaka's theme is like very beautiful and like powerful and emotional and it's clear she sees herself as the main character and that is her downfall is that sayaka forgets that you're the main character in your life, but you're never the main character in anyone else's life. That's just perspective. Yeah, and she then also is very willing to cast characters like uh, Kyoko and Homura as the villains yeah. in her story that she's the hero of. And, and I don't know, Madoka's like her side. I don't know. Her. Yeah. The most break my heart actually about all of this is the bit where she's sitting in the rain with Madoka. And she she gets all snappy with her about how Madoka is not helping. And she runs away and she immediately says, oh, my God, why did I say that? Why Mm -hmm. did I? And that's that's the last conversation they have. And it's like. Is is that before she gets on the subway? Yeah, I think she gets on the train Mm -hmm. after that. So it's just like this absolutely heart shattering note to leave on is that, yeah, she has dug herself so deep into this hole that. She's just being rude and standoffish and cynical to the people who love her the most and the people who've stuck by her the most. And she knows that, but she's too, she's A, too stubborn and B, too deep in her depression to actually turn around and try to make it better. Yeah. Um, and then she definitely kills some guys, and I think we're not supposed to be on her side. But I can am. we can we talk about can we talk about how su- I believe I wrote in the notes, and I'm just going to read it verbatim. Big feelings on this subway conversation because Sayaka does a subway murder, and it made me feel like that Esmeralda Justice GIF. <laughs> like because, and I now I'll say it's a very different experience in the dub. Y'all, I got, I gotta talk about it. I gotta talk yeah, about it really yeah, quickly. Yeah, you mentioned this. Ooh. Okay, 
I believe that the Modica dub came out in about 2014. And I just want to give you some frames of reference for what was happening in 2014 America, because like stuff was going down. That was still Obama era, you know, like, but, but we were seeing the signs of what would go into DJT's, you know, very recent, I almost said a reign, but you know, his very fascist movement. However, to get back to the dub, in the dub, the words used to talk about the women that these two high schoolers is how I'm interpreting them. They look like high schoolers. Oh, really? I had pictured them as older, like college age or even like 20s. Let's go college age because that actually helps a little bit in the show's defense. (laughs) So first of all, they're using words like dumb slut. They're calling the women bitches and hoes. However, here's the thing. They say it with an African-American black scent. And it's not great. Like, they're like, yo, these dumb bitches, they be, and you're like, whoa, okay, that's not great. That's not great. Because what it immediately does is it urbanizes, and I am using some square quotes, urbanizes the scene, and it feels very fraught. Because this is a really important scene from Sayaka's perspective because she definitely does a murder. I don't care what Urobuchi says. I know he says it's ambiguous. She kills two dudes on a train. (laughs) Um, But it also kind of tainted this scene because all I could focus on was like the fact that they had a light black scent. And I don't know who did like the ADR script. I don't know who was in charge, but I'm calling this dub out in 2021 because that was unacceptable then it's unacceptable now yeah and it never should have happened and i know i had this same qualm if you're listening in akadama drive until i did find out that it was a black man but panty and stocking i'm still mad at you (laughs) but like i mean it's just not great and it really tainted the scene because like it's unnecessary and what it does is it makes it feel charged in a different way and it takes away from what i think and i think we all can agree is a really like powerful scene and kind of terrifying scene like it's a little bit terrifying because Sayaka is at a point where she's her view of saving humanity is doing whatever it takes but like then hearing a black scent and hearing them be like yo I had to like and then dog they don't say dog they fall very short of saying that but like you can you can tell when someone's using AAVE as like decoration it's not great dubs really need to stop doing that yeah like that the whole point of that scene is that sayaka is becoming aware of misogyny in the world around her and now you've made it ah you've made it misogyny with like ethnic microaggressions which you know like like, yum yum i don't want it Yeah. yeah. And I mean, but that's partially why I watch dubs, especially for stuff like this, because I think it's important to bring that up as like how that can color somebody's viewing. And what it did was it just made it made me feel even more disgust for the scene towards the men. But then I was like, God, who? Because what this dub was by. I mean, it's airing on Crunchyroll, so Funimation didn't do this dub. But no, like, it was. Uh, Monica is one of those. Licenses owned by uh, Anaplex USA. Yeah, yeah Anaplex kind of. Anaplex should be a little bit ashamed that like this was allowed to fly. And what it says to me is that like, even though you have Christina V, who is a woman of color, there clearly weren't enough people of color in the room to be like, 
mm, maybe don't have the Japanese men talk in a black scent like they're from the Bronx. It's not mm. great. It's not, Ooh. and it's not. It's not. It's not. I, there's no good pivot out of this, but... Uh, I mean, but, uh, like, Sayaka absolutely does a murder. Oh, she absolutely murders them, and it's good. murders. Like... And then the show decides that it wants to be smug about itself for a minute and breaks the uh, the the sort of tight framing we've had on learning things as the girls learn them. And we swoop out to Kyuubi revealing that it was midichlorians all along. So I, I hate. I don't. I don't know what midichlorians are. Is it the Star Wars thing? Yeah that that's uh, when people reve- uh, that was the thing in Phantom Menace where it's revealed that. Uh, the force is actually tiny micro science creatures in your blood, and it can't be measured. With- it's so it's not it's- magic. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. So midichlorians is make, like. Did I just make somebody listening to this real angry because I called the like force magic? The force is magic. It's magic. It's, yeah, it's I mean, space like fantasy like, and it's magic. Exactly. So, yeah, yeah midichlorians like, is like. I mean, Darth Vader, for, Darth Vader um, is just Voldemort in all mm-hmm. black. Yep. It's just it's fucking. It's it's that first movie's fault that the hero's journey as a monomyth structure came back into vogue. Um, and I'm not going to go on a tangent about that because I, I have <laughs> I have some academic beef with Joseph Campbell. We're not here to talk about that. We're here to talk about my anime beef with Jenna Robochi. Um, <laughs> Is it sexist? I believe he's sexist, right? That's mm. he's. I mean, he's from the 40s, so he has everything comes with that. Oh, do um, better, Joseph Campbell. And just like whole issues of that strain mm. of structurist mythology, like yeah. you know, it, it was basically Yoldi TV tropes in a weird way of like all of these scholars kind of taking aspects from myth from around the world and from very different cultures and mushing them together into convenient patterns which don't always which can erase some nuance um and that's that's kind of what happens here though like the nuance there is no nuance like kubey looks at you and he's like hey viewer guess what my name's kubey and i'm here to things for you i too have watched utana but i'm going to do it in a blunter and less good way Kyubei basically is like, guess who re-upped their Funimation and Crunchyroll? <laughs> You're just like, Kyubei, I don't need to know you subscribe to anime to, like, spoil this for me. I, I will say. I truly, truly hate when when shows that want to be cool and important decide that the way to do that is to scientify magic concepts. I fucking yeah. hate it. Kyubei literally could have been like, I'm doing this for the lols. And I, that would have been much more of like an engaging thing. Because like, I did realize on this watch, I know a lot of people feel that like Kyubei is just chaotic evil on the alignment chart. I think the true horror of him is that Kyubei is actually chaotic good with like a splash of lawful evil. Because Kyubei really does think that they are doing the right thing for the universe even says like we have to think about like you know you want humanity in the future to be able to go out into the world and experience a world and connect with cultures in a world that's not dead right so like if we have to sacrifice some teenage girls that's Mm -hmm. what we gonna do and like kube really thinks that they're doing good the horror is is that like Kyubei is not at all bothered by the fact that like the batteries he's using from like space target are teenage girls. Exactly. Like that's the, yeah, that's the thing that makes it really scary is that Kyubei is not like a cackling evil villain. They are just very pragmatic. And so far as they can 
tell this is the correct thing to do and you know if you look it's that very again it's that very like you know pair everything back down to that very like almost trolley problem-esque question of like the many versus the few and it just makes logical sense right um so okay hang on as a while we're talking about the entropy shit um what did you guys (laughs) think of that kind of reveal that like uh you know magical girls have been here throughout history because that okay Okay. i had a kind of stuff for me y'all my first thought was did magical girls create slavery I was like, I was like, because Cube is like everything bad that's happened, like is the result of a witch, and that if we hadn't have interceded, you all would have been in caves. And y'all, I'm so sorry. This is probably because I'm black. No, you <laughs> literally, literally, I literally yeah. wrote. I gotta find it in my notes, but I believe I was like, this is not great when you consider like slavery might be a product of Q-based species intervening. The same for like witch hunts. Any major event in history, America might be a result of Cuba, and yeah. I, I don't know if I mean that positively. <laughs> like it, it's because like he shows like Cleopatra, and I was like, wait a minute, <laughs> wait See, a minute. Yeah, like that that whole sequence, like it's it's because it's so quick. It's kind of interesting, but it also makes me itch because like I think, mm-hmm. for example, it would be fair enough to play around with like, oh, Joan of Arc might have been a magical girl because she is already a oh, highly well, mythologized actually, figure. Um, actually, there is, is like, a spinoff where Joan of Arc is a magical girl. <laughs> really? Yeah, okay. you know. I was going to say, I'm like, every anime property, especially if they have yeah. a gacha game, is now obligated to have a Joan of Arc character. Yeah. There's, um, there's definitely like, a spinoff. There's a, yeah, there's a spinoff where like... <laughs> She's she's a magical girl. Wow. See, so <laughs> playing sure. around with that, I'm like, okay, fair enough. We can kind of like any depiction that we have of Joan of Arc in fiction now so, is kind of like yeah. so beyond herself. But then it gets into stuff like I think one of them is implied to be Anne Frank. And I'm like, yeah, hello? No, no Don't it's do not that. an implication. It's not an That's, implication. Like, like little Anne was a magical girl. And like Yeah, and it's that like the is that's where it becomes quite ghoulish, especially when you think about Japan's very real life entanglement with Germany during World War II, wherein Oof. they were not on, I'm not going to say there's a good or bad side because I don't think it's as clear cut, but I do think the side that caused a genocide is bad. And I'm going to stick to that, whether or I, not yes, uh, I anyone listening likes that. Type. Yeah. And so when you think about Japan's like real life entanglement, because then, okay, so that implies things like, Okay, so if we have magical girls in Japan, that implies like girls like Anne Frank are magical girls, girls who were in horrific situations like enslavement or, you know, various, the various things that can happen and are often unfortunately visited upon teenagers. Mm-hmm. Any of them could be magical girls. And I guess that's where you have to suspend your disbelief and be like, sure, Cleopatra was a magical girl. Just going to push that aside. But just, also, yeah, like, there's so many ways that you can unpack this, and they're all no. bad because yeah, they, they, <laughs> they wanted. Okay, we wanted to do. Why are only girls magical girls? Because they've never yeah. heard of a magical boy show. It's because girls' yeah. emotions are just so powerful and unruly, and well, it's unique and, to girls. And then, like, I have to say, it also made me think. I was like, wait, okay, you mean to tell me like non-binary and like trans girls cannot be magical girls? 
And I was like, oh, this is Cubay's a little bit of a gender essentialist. Dude, <laughs> that might that hard. Like, I, I never thought I would say these words out loud. Are you ready for them? Cubay's a turf. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, let's think about that for a second. You may be onto something there. Because, yeah, Cubay, they have Cubay's very, it's, they have very essentialist views. Well, I mean, <laughs> they believe in girl power in a very literal sense. Um, <laughs> in that they are using girls as the batteries to, to prevent the heat death of the universe. Yeah, and um, internet, you yeah. can quote me and slap that on a meme. Cubase a turf. God. Oh my god. Okay. That, okay. <laughs> I don't I'm know how to transition from that other than I, like, I just, yeah. oh God, gosh. And y'all, I also, and I'm just giving you my darkest thoughts during this watch. I did have the passive thought. I was like, wait a second of Cleopatra. And then I went to the slavery thing. And then I did have the thought, I swear to God, if I find out some Harriet Tubman was a magical girl BS on the internet, I'm going to oh scourge. Cause it, it just, because it does open up this really horrific Pandora's box that now I can never shut. Exactly, um, which is why it's so like they just kind of toss it in there, and I'm like, is this world building or is this opening a can of it's worms? Bad. And it's so. Building? And I feel like the the natural knee jerk response would be to like, oh, you're just overthinking. It. Except that this is the exact kind of world explaining monologue that says all right, we're going to put together a cohesive ex- explanation yeah. for how this has all happened. And but don't what, think about the parts we didn't want you to think about. And this <laughs> is what Gorobuchi likes to do. This is exactly what, from my understanding, this is kind of what happens in Psychopaths, where like the idea is really neat, but then you start, you start to think about like the real societal ramifications. And like, they're not just, great. Just any, <laughs> it's not any- great. I think this is, yeah, like like you kind of said before, Vry, like, yeah, any kind of, like, s- fantasy idea getting sci-fi-ified gets tricky very quickly, which I think, I imagine we'll talk about when we get to our Wonder Egg priority Wonder retrospective. But also this this world-building trick of, like, uh, yes, our, our speculative element has always been here and it has influenced the world as you know it. It gets weird very quickly. It just always makes yeah. me think of the Michael Bay Transformers movies. Because they also have that world-building quirk. It's like, oh yes, there were Transformers on Earth in the ancient times. And so that is how humanity and technology is. How it is. And a Decepticon killed Hitler by turning into his watch or some nonsense. So it just, it always makes you think of that. I'm like, this is getting real Michael Bay real quickly. Um, And I mean, like, I just want to, I just want to back up the fact that like, that most likely is Anne Frank, because I know for a fact, like they show Queen Himiko, who is a real Japanese figure. Mm-hmm. They also show mm-hmm. Joan of Arc and they show Cassandra of Troy. And they definitely, oh. that's definitely Cleopatra. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Y'all, yeah. I didn't pick they Cassandra. really had the gall and they, they were yeah. like, mm, you know who's going to be great? Probably a, at least a Jewish magical girl, but I'm I'm willing to say like that's probably Anne Frank that they yeah. were going for. Which because again, like- there is no the when you think of a Jewish girl, Anne Frank is, and I I I don't I don't mean this at all in a, offensively. J- Anne Frank is very codified in Western culture as the Jewish girl. Yeah, and mm-hmm. I think that's ingrained, especially speaking as an American, that's very ingrained from the moment that you learn about the Holocaust and you learn about World War II. And Frank kind of becomes the cultural image that has been taught, at least from generate at least from millennials, I would say. You know, and 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 I don't I don't necessarily think that she is taught with the respect she deserves. Mm-hmm. Um I and, think she's used as a martyr. Yeah. But like I feel real discomfort with like we have this 
ambiguous savannah magical girl from like africa in scare quotes but like then they had the gall to use Anne Frank. I know, like it's yeah. That that was kind of like mm, I was like, okay, like playing around with okay, yes, Cleopatra, Joan of Arc, Rome mythologized, but yeah, like that's that's within living memory. Yeah, Maybe don't mess around with that. Oh my god. Anyway, and like, and I'm sure that out there there's a Reddit where someone was like, "Yo, what was Anne Frank's wish?" Don't ask that. Yeah. Anne Frank was a real human <laughs> being. She's yeah, not exactly. a fictional character. Exactly. The, so much of I think part of my gripes with with madoka some from a modern perspective are a little bit couched in uh in modern the modern madoka fandom like part of yeah. me resents like i think part of my crankiness with the dark with the rapid darkness of sayaka's arc is because i had to sit through magical girl site which which looked at the darkest mm-hmm. point in mm-hmm. this show and said let's start there but yeah. th- then with uh, this with this whole QB thing and this and the entropy monologue, I think on the one hand, it is really terrifying to sit through because of the way that QB gaslights Madoka and, and, and uses, rationalizes it. Uh, yeah. And like, it's it's this very assault driven language. Like, yeah. why are you so upset about something based on a misunderstanding? It's your mistake and puts all of this on her. And it's so upsetting to watch because she's a child. Very. But all I can think about watching that scene is A, the many, many Reddit threads I have seen about how maybe Cube was right, actually. And- oh god, white people on the internet. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry, but like we all know. Yeah, yeah. no, um yeah, no, that's, yeah, I'll take that. That's fair and you should say it. But and, and then also, yes, Madoka fans, I'm gonna bring up the fucking Al Qaeda quote. I forgot we did not talk about that. Yeah, yeah, because it belongs here. Because uh, I think to an extent we are supposed to be like, it really makes you think, don't it, about QB. Okay. Because there's this, uh, and, and I'll have Peter link it in the show notes, um, but to quote the relevant bit from an interview with uh, with Orobuchi. Uh, so the interviewer says, Madoka Magica is an original story. Where did the idea come from? And Orobuchi says, I received a request to write a bloody story where magical girls appear and then drop out one by one. I paid attention to the aspects that are troubling or overlooked in the traditional magical girl genre. Fuck off. I've been thinking (laughs) that magical girls who have acquired superhuman abilities will find themselves removed from the world, which could cause contradictions and reactions. And then the uh, interviewer follows up. Magical girls who are full of hope and who strive to save the people soon suffer from hatred and jealousy, which turn them into the enemy witches. The change from good to evil left an emotional impact, Norobuchi says. For example, Al-Qaeda brought down the Twin Towers due to their self-righteousness. Justice for some people is an evil for others. Good intentions, kindness, and hope will not necessarily make people happy. Ryan, am I allowed to say a swear? Can I say a swear? swear? What the fuck, Urobuchi? Yeah, what the fuck? Okay, so like, I had managed not to hear of this until you put it in the show notes last time. Same. And I'm, I have several questions. It, um, it is such a disingenuous thing to say that like, I, I don't even know where to start. I don't even, first, I guess let's start with the first one that like, he clearly has never watched any Magical Girl anime. Clearly, because like the genre has never overlooked. Need we go back to where we talked about um, who was the magical girl that got hit by a truck? Yeah. Oh, um, Mama, the one the producer yeah. put. Yeah, 
Yeah, she like, got hit by a truck. Death has always been a part of Magical Girls. I think that's a critical part, actually, of the genres, talking about death. Well, and so, I, like, it's such an odd quote, particularly, not just because of what we were just talking about, where the show gets a little tasteless, a lot tasteless, with uh, real-world implications, but also because I think that the ending really sticks the landing in some ways. It does. As, oh, as far as like Madoka being this, this beacon of hope and hope is good and powerful. And that's such a magical girl thing. And I get, I get the wibbles a little bit. Yeah. Knowing, <laughs> knowing that he was like, well, you know, I think al brought down the twin towers, uh, their self-righteousness instead of like the very complex background it's just I don't, like magical girls. I don't know what to say <laughs> other than I'm an angry. <laughs> Unprompted is very interesting. Okay, I said I said I wouldn't talk about fate more, but this is the last time. Um, <laughs> and I am paraphrasing because I can't remember, can't remember it. But in the author's notes at the back of the very first Fate Zero um, novels, which I think was 2006, 2007. Um, mm-hmm. uh, so Fate Stay Night happened, it's the game, and then they got Urobochi in to write some prequel novels, basically oh, about God. the hot dads of all of the main characters from the original, um, you know, a prequel setting up basically the mess the kids have to clean up in the next game. So Fate Zero has a very tragic ending because it is kind of the midpoint of a story and it is setting up um, you know, yeah, like I said, they're mistakes that the next generation have to fix. Um, so if you watch it on its own, it's a, it's bleh, it's terrible. But if you know that there is hope at the end, it's interesting. But that really suited Urobochi, so he says, because he's like, well, he was in this mindset where he was like, he really kind of only felt like he could write tragic stories. So him being brought on to be like, oh, I'll write, okay, I know there's a happy ending in the distance, so I'm going to write the midpoint of this story where everything goes wrong for everyone. And that really suits me creatively at the moment. And he has a quote in there, which again, I'm paraphrasing, so please feel free to correct me because I don't have it on me, but I remember this because he has this thing he says that he's like, I can't actually fathom writing a story with like a happy ending unless it involved a character changing the world in such a complete way that the rules of the world as we know it change and I'm looking at Madoka and I'm like is that where you found a way to do that is that where you found a way to climb out of this kind of dark and depressing writing rut you were in kind of you know it kind of of sounds like he's describing it like a creative block like he cannot fathom writing a happy ending unless a character remakes the world i respect him as someone who does his craft but like this dude must like the smell of his own toots so (laughs) (laughs) i feel like like i am already someone who is exhausted by men in general (laughs) but like i've never felt more exhausted hearing someone talk about a man be like i can't write a happy ending unless it changes the world man 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 man. sadness is better like oh god go eat go eat a snickers bar and find some happiness like not even necessarily sadness is better but like sadness is this deep inevitability which again he's writing much more positive works now so i'm kind of like i hope that something happened in your life like you know improved i don't know i don't know i don't want to speculate on him but also just like are you good man but again, it throws the ending of Madoka into really sharp relief because I love this ending because it is so hopeful. And that is the hill that I will die on, is that the ending works because it puts everything back together. It's kind of a good segue into actually like talking about agency in this show. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because oh, like this show returns agency to the girls finally at the end. 
like finally mm-hmm. and that's why i don't think that you're wrong that sayaka is a protagonist of the show i think it's I think Madoka is as well, and it's just kind of uh, an ensemble piece because Madoka's yeah. arc is about like being that she has the luxury, not even the luxury, like the hard, the, the this hard won um, privilege that she's protected long enough to have all the information to be able to make an informed decision, right. and that's true agency, right? Because this this is the Madoka we meet is a Madoka who like spins 99% of the show not as a magical girl (laughs) like she gets to get all of these threads of information that have been wrapped around her she gets to finally access and there are even moments where like Monica's hinted at like remembering a timeline that she existed in not clearly but like having a flashback and being like think we did this before maybe I shouldn't do this action but like she finally gets to make this choice and of course because of all the power stored inside of her and her comet size soul gym like she gets to make a choice of like i want a world where witches don't exist past present future where this is not anything and she gets to write the universe which is pretty which is pretty awesome yeah she she gets to become god (laughs) i do have to ask why they are naked when like monica's about to fade and homura is like seeing her girlfriend one more time that's just sapphic sapphic culture is floating naked in the cosmos i resent the very best friend line i resent it so much that was some that was some cishet nonsense that i will not stand for 2012 tumblr would have hated that (laughs) i'll even like i'd have even been happy with with some clamp-esque you're the most important person to me because they did that with uh, kyoko and sayaka and that's fine Okay, so <laughs> they went with friend. Rewatching the show again is interesting because you know, ten years ago, I I was walking through life blasely assuming that I was straight and cis, which is now oh, hilarious to me. Um, but yeah, like definitely, like I, I remember watching this the first time and being like, that is so moving that they have this platonic bond that is so strong that it has reshaped the universe. And look, honestly, I think it's because I had that initial reaction. But even now, I'm kind of I'm like. Yes, I want to see stories where platonic friendships are treated as these great epic cosmic love stories and they can change the world. But also I want to see stories where they are gay for each other and it is canon up front and it explores that. So I'm there are two wolves inside of me. Um, but I'm like, that's pretty gay. <laughs> well, and I, I think while, while we're a far cry from where we were at the beginning of the 2010s, where terminology like transgender was still being thrown like stones and i'm not going to pretend that there that people don't use trans as an absolute pejorative against people i'm not going to pretend that however i do think we're in a i do think what we saw with modica in 2011 was really good representation at the time but now in 2021 where we have a beautiful world where trans people exist where people who are sapphic exist and they can be open about it and should it doesn't feel great seeing them be like oh you're my best friend when like no we demand more and we should get more right i even think that it would almost be like it would still be a little annoying and disappointing especially given that what we know of the juggernaut franchise it became with all of the 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 really leaning into that but not quite committal other material Mm -hmm. but inevitably this ending is colored by the movie yeah. That particular element of the ending is. is real colored by the movie. 
which we'll get into next time but i want to i want to touch on this buddhist uh cycle of samsara i'm seeing in the notes i want i want i want you to hit that up vry uh yeah that's i mean that's part of because i've I've seen people who didn't really like the ending because they they felt really bad for for Homura being kind of stuck to trapped fighting monsters forever. But I don't know. I I thought that well, a it's kind of interesting because Garoka is so clearly pulling from uh, Christian Christian mythos. Or as my wife uh, grumbled on the couch next to me as she sat through the series, ah, the Protestant work ethic. Um, <laughs> Where, yeah, it is. You work hard and suffer all your life and then Garoka comes to collect you and take you to Valhalla. Oh my but, gosh, but, that's so true. But also, <laughs> like, I feel like Homer's story specifically really makes sense in a Buddhist tradition where she has gone through this over and over again and finally she's reached this last cycle where eventually she'll she's shed all of these worldly things and and then you know she'll finally be free at the end of it well and it's interesting because and i and i i'm speaking from like what i know of buddhism so i absolutely might be wrong please correct me um homer kind of feels like a bodhisattva in a way like Mm. she's reached a level of enlightenment she understands she sees the truth but she's gonna remain because she understands that there are other people who are going to need help getting there um and i think that's actually a really it's very japanese to some degree Mm -hmm. because i mean buddhism is a part of japan it was certainly imported but like it's quite interesting um, but I think if you don't really know a lot about Buddhism, it probably would be a very dissatisfying ending if you're not looking at it from that approach. And like I said, I might be very wrong in what I'm saying. And I'm I, I am I also quite basic in my knowledge of uh, of Buddhist theology. So yeah, I will say I want to push back against Gautica as Christian and see her more as being very Shinto mm. and actually being kind of like Izanami wherein like because they kind of have a similar way that like Madoka's origin happens just like Izanami so you know Izanami is like one of the one of the well she was sister wife to her brother (laughs) she was sister wife to her brother Izanagi and basically Izanami is the goddess of creation and she's also the goddess of death and Madoka is very much so the goddess of creation, a world that she creates specifically a universe and a reality where magical girls don't suffer a living death, essentially, where like they pass on and that's it. Like you don't have to suffer as a witch. But she's also the goddess of death where she's ferrying these magical girls across time as she spreads herself across time into a world where like you've exhausted your soul gym. But she's also the barrier between a world where you've exhausted your soul gym and you become a witch. Like she's specifically blocking off that part of the world. Like when you die, it is not this tragic thing. It is a peaceful thing now. It's just a fact. And Mm -hmm. I find that really interesting because, um, and I, I, I say that because I think calling, I feel very fraught about calling Madoka Gattaca because it feels very fraught to apply a deeply Western thing to a culture and i'm and i mean i know japan has its own entanglement with christianity where there was a lot of pushback and a lot of christians were killed in that pushback historically and even today um there's still you know there's an interesting there's a lot to say about like mormonism in japan and i know mormons are no longer called mormons 
and believe they're called Latter-day Saints is what they're going by. But there's a lot of interesting kind of entanglement with that. But I, mm-hmm. I felt weird kind of applying it. And as I was watching, I was like, she's kind of like Izanami. She goes on this journey into what would be Yomi, the underworld. But in this case, it's a journey through Walsburgus Notch's massive witch barrier. That's kind of her Yomi. And she can't return from that. Like she's tasted the food of the underworld, but that food is like her wish. Her wish is what's ultimately sustaining her, right? Like that's what allows her to remain alive. And it's just this interesting parallel. And I have no clue if I'm reading too much into it, if that was the intent, but I think it's, it would be interesting to see some like literature, more so looking at her as being very similar to like this mother goddess figure than to God. Cause I do yeah. think that's, that's a little fraught. <laughs> yeah, no fair. I mean, I think it's not, I don't think it's entirely, I think the series invites those comparisons a little bit with rebellion. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think that yeah, you're they, right that. Yeah, they certainly do with rebellion. Maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> no, but I think you're also right that, that a, a certainly a deep an extremely underexplored um, and, primary approach is is shintoism and japanese's own cultural norms i did on this uh i i did on this rewatch have a little bit of a feel about the very tanabata uh vibes of homura and madoka mm-hmm. being separated in in sparkly space yeah. time well and 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 i think i know i know we keep mentioning rebellion y'all but it's hard not to once you've seen it you can't unsee it you're gonna join us in that pain next time um but like even in that movie the fact that like when i and i guess just to stick to this show the fact that madoka's dress literally contains the universe as part of the backdrop as part of the like under fabric of her dress there is a universe contained within it that i like to think she's protecting everyone from accessing like that kind of furthers the like Orihime and Hikoboshi connection of like um you know the cowherd and like the princess they're separated and in a lot of ways like she and Homura cannot meet until their stars pass and when that happens that's gonna be Homura's gonna be dead like that's the only way they're gonna meet again is Homura's Homura gotta die But is okay. So, do you reckon that it's kind of implied that Hamura is going is sort of semi immortal now? Because what I've always read that final scene where she has the big sort of weird wings that look like the West sort of witch labyrinth opening up around her, but then she hears Madoka's voice and then she smiles and she keeps fighting. So I, I, I kind of took that initially, and I think this may have been influenced by other conversations that I had but like every time she almost risks falling into despair she remembers that her girl is out there and so she's able to keep fighting basically indefinitely God, that's that good gay good yeah. gay stuff that I live for <laughs> eat it up gay will let you a buffet yum 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 Delish. I dig it my interpretation of the last scene was always like this is her final battle like her her great last yeah. stand uh, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I always took it as I, I will say the first time I watched it I took it as like Homer going into yet another battle this time I was like yo is Homer about to meet Monica again but you don't get to see it oh it pulls a bloody song of Achilles where the final bit is like them like I, just I will, seeing each other in the underworld and then it finishes I will and you're say, like anyway. <laughs> I, I will say I think that actually this may not be because 
like we said, we have another movie and that movie is a direct continuation. Now we're just living in a, in a beautiful time where the, Gosh, where the TV ending is self-contained. Did, yes. did I make a wish to Cuba for this? Because I'm sorry, everyone. <laughs> See, I'm sorry. Yeah, like, to, I mean, we'll get into Rebellion Exists and I am kind of at peace with that. We'll deal with that next time. But to me, this series is one of the most wonderfully, like, efficiently written beautifully self-contained narratives wonderfully paced and just the ending brings it all together which again is why my i love this show i have beef with like again the the perhaps unintentional impact it had on the industry um and again i reiterate that the problem there is that everyone who saw this and was like oh magical girl die make money um they're missing the point because the really powerful thing about this show is that and let me tell you, the show hits a bit different in the year of our Lord 2021 mm. because the the thing that is so powerful about the ending is that, yes, it gives you a perhaps, it, it projects this magical girl story onto a perhaps more realistic, more cynical view of the world. But then it says, okay, yes, the world is cruel. Yes, heroism is not easy. Yes, hope and love maybe cannot change everything. But you know what? I'm going to try. It's yeah. like, no, fuck you. I'm going to be hopeful. I'm going to believe in the power of love. And she does, and it works. So it puts that all back together. It's a deeply optimistic show. And the fact that, like, in 2021, you could probably go on Reddit and see someone talking about how dark Monica is and missing the point of, like, no, this is a show about teenage girls finally winning. Mm-hmm. Like they and how do they win? They get their autonomy back. They stop yeah, like being they, objects. They stop literally powering the world, and they finally get to just exist. Like they get to do this cool adventure. And when it's over, there is a teenage girl, a peer of their own, to welcome them home and say, "Hey, you did a good job, and I'm going to keep you safe." And hope is alive. Like it's not the fact that like this show's legacy is, ooh, Meguka, real dark and grim, is the worst. And I am so sorry that I made that wish to a talking cat mouse named Kyubei <laughs> to put us in this timeline. <laughs> because well, it, just... it, it really is the worst. <laughs> yeah, I think, I mean, I think uh, maybe like, yeah, again, maybe the industry legacy is that like, we had all those kind of cash cow sort of copy, well, not mm-hmm. copycat series, you know, series trying to play with similar things and series who do similar things getting adapted in the wake of this. But I think the people who get it, this is the Us. legacy for them. Yeah. like the- <laughs> We get it. Because, <laughs> yeah, it's about, and I mean, I, I said the show hits different in 2021. I think it's possibly Gosh. just because I'm older and wiser. I think the show mm-hmm. kind of has a great weird evergreen quality to it where like, I mean, you know, uh, until like Madoka, we are able to rearrange the world into one that doesn't treat young women or, you know, young assigned female at birth people like garbage and like objects. Uh, this will continue to resonate with audiences. I think that it has a real staying power, which I was kind of pleasantly surprised to discover upon re- rewatching it. Yeah, no, I, I, as much as I have spent the last hour grumping, I, I really am on the whole fond of Madoka. And honestly, I think episode 10 is maybe one of the best single episodes of oh, TV. My period. heart. My heart. So it, it remains deeply funny to me that uh, this show and Yuri on Ice have the same episode 10 twist. Oh my <laughs> God. Fucking funny. I do. God. Oh, jeez. 
as some as someone as someone who like staked their entire personality on Yuri on Ice in the year of our Lord 2016. Oh my God. Yes, it was be it was because I, I remember it because I had moved to Japan and I started watching it and like my life was kind of paralleling his, except where was my hot where was my hot blonde somebody? Where was my um, Russian? Right, like <laughs> Like, but yeah, I remember watching it and it, oh my God, episode 10 does have this out. God. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. The love interest was really gay all along and the protagonist forgot about it. It's the same. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Uh, We are, we are a little over an hour. Do you two have any final thoughts before we wrap it up real quick? I'm going to say, I really think that if you were someone who maybe some of these ideas about what we've pushed back against what people who don't watch Magical Girl Show. Um, if any of those ideas kind of chafed you and you were like, well, no, Monica really is dark. I implore you, you and your ripened age, as we have all aged, I really implore you to go back and watch Monica and really internalize some of what you've heard and go back and watch and try to see it from the perspective of a teenage girl and really open yourself up to seeing that this is a genre that's always played in that. And it's important to have those conversations. Yeah. Go give it a watch again. Make time. Yeah. Honestly. Yeah. Give it a watch. Like I, again, I have a few prickly issues with it, but honestly it's held up. I maintain that it's one of the most uh, efficiently paced, uh, neatly characterized, thematically strong shows that maybe I've ever watched. Um, It's, you know, it draws on a lot of stuff that's come before. Not, you know, it's not doing, in a lot of ways, it's not doing anything like amazingly new, but it knits everything together in such a great way. And again, it brings it all to this conclusion that makes the whole tragic journey worth it. Um, my one beef with the ending is that Sayaka doesn't, like Sayaka's still dead, but mm, we can get to that rebellion story again. But yes, this is a series that I think will always have a very special role in my heart. Mm. I'm thinking of yeah. getting a tattoo based on this series, um, for goodness sake. So it's it's special. I think, you know, it has such staying power and it has gotten all those kind of half-hearted spin-offs and stuff because the original really was just something special. It was lightning in a bottle, maybe, but it's just it's, it's good. It's it's a real gem of a show. It is uh, indeed. Hopefully not okay. with someone's soul in it, but perhaps there's a conversation there to be had about the nature of the animation industry. That's a weird note to end on. I'm gonna hand back over to you, Brian. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us, Annie Fan. If you liked what you heard, you can find more from us on our website at www.animefeminist.com. If you really liked what you heard, consider tossing us a dollar on our Patreon, patreon.com slash animefeminist. Even a dollar a month really goes a long way towards making content happen mm-hmm. on the page and in your earbuds. And also for $5 a month, you can get access to our Discord where we hang out and there are a bunch of cool people who talk about anime, and it's fun. Uh, you can find us on social media as well. We are on Facebook at Anime Fem, we are on Tumblr at Anime Feminist, and we are on Twitter at Anime Feminist. And buckle up, because next time we're going to round this out by finally uh, following through on our threat to talk about rebellion. It's gonna be <laughs> a time. Mm-hmm.